0: Hi, am Mimi Gerges. Journalist Soad McKennett was born and raised in Germany, the daughter of Muslim immigrants. Since 9-11, she's reported on some of the most dangerous and important stories of our time. How were you sure that you wouldn't get kidnapped?
1: I asked, are you guaranteeing that I will get out of this alive? Uh, and they said, yes, well, if everything goes well.
0: Welcome to the Mimi Gerges Show. When it comes to Islamic radicalism, Washington Post reporter Suad McKennett has seen it all. She first started with investigating the German connection of the 9-11 hijackers. She went to Iraq when war broke out there, then to every hotspot in the Middle East. With her Arabic language skills and knowledge of the culture, she's able to reach high-level jihadists as well as the Muslim communities of Europe. She's written a memoir called I Was Told to Come Alone. Suad, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mimi. So in 2014, you're able to arrange a meeting with a high-level uh, ISIS leader. You were told to come alone, yeah. which is where we get the title of your memoir, um, to leave behind any phones, um, your ID even, just to bring a pen and a pad. Isn't that extremely dangerous?
1: Yes, uh, of course it is uh, extremely dangerous, and it's uh, there was a decision-making process um, um, where I really had to Think about should I do it or not? It was uh, so when when I reached out to uh, contact people within ISIS and I said I wanted to speak to somebody who had authority, right? Who not just some foot soldier, but somebody who really uh, knew about the structure of the uh, of the group and what the caliphate was about and um, a decision maker, a decision maker. Yeah, somebody was you know with power. Um, they didn't tell me who I would meet. I had no idea when I uh, went to the meeting when I finally decided to do it that this person actually came also uh, f- had a similar background uh, and uh, it was somebody who had gro- who grew up in Europe and who spoke uh, several languages fluent. And um, i uh, I was a bit shocked uh, because, uh, I realized in, in, in the book, and I was told to come alone, I described the, the, the conversations we had, the, uh, also the moments where I challenged him quite a lot, and, and up until the moment where I felt he grew upset and uh, his, his hand moved towards, you know, the pocket where I could see he had a gun or a knife, and I decided to stop then. But um, it, was, it was shocking to me to see that somebody who grew up in Europe, who, had so, who could have turned into something totally different, um, uh, joined this ideology and uh, he was very clear about what the objectives were.
0: How were you sure that you wouldn't get kidnapped? Because journalists, I don't have to remind you, have been kidnapped sure. for you
1: and killed. Of course, and there's never a guarantee, Mimi. There was no guarantee that, um, except for their agreement to grant me the interview. Mm-hmm. And I asked, "Are you guaranteeing that I will get out of this alive?" Uh, and they said, uh, "Yes. Well, if everything goes well." But uh, everything if we goes like your well, questions. <laughs> everything goes well, can be very um, mm-hmm. interpreted in a different way. If your questions are going well and you are, you, and you don't uh, ask too many difficult questions or uh, challenging questions, then yes. But um, it's really after having done this for so many years, I also um, felt at a certain moment when I sat with him in the car and when I challenged him that now you have to stop. So it was the right decision, yeah
0: your Your mom is Turkish, your dad is Moroccan. Did you ever experience
1: discrimination in Germany because you're not a
0: white German?
1: Yeah, it was something I experienced first of all, as a child, when uh, I lived in Morocco for three and a half years with my grandmother, who was the first feminist I, I met in my life. Uh, and when i was when my parents took me back to Germany, some kids in the neighborhood were not allowed to play with us. Uh, we were the only non-German Germans in that neighborhood. We were a little bit uh, the outsiders due to the fact that our parents were just workers and not managers or bankers. That was number one. Um, Number two, I think the fact that my older sister um, is mentally challenged also played a role in this because some kids would say, oh, we cannot play with you. You have weird sisters. And um, and then uh, when I grew a bit older as a teenager, I felt really um, I was worried, not only worried, I, w- I was afraid of what happened in Germany. I saw the houses of Turkish guest workers burning and uh, I, s- I myself and my brother, we witnessed how skinheads were chasing us. These are the neo-Nazis. The neo-Nazis, and um, mm-hmm. they were sh- basically telling us, look, uh, gypsies, they call us gypsies, we will kill you, we will burn you. And those were moments where I told my parents, pack your stuff because they don't want us here. And this came off also because I, I read so much about German history, about what happened during the Holocaust, and I really feared for my life. Now, discrimination happened also after I became a journalist. Um, I had the best degrees at the university. I uh, went to the best journalism schools. Sp- spoke, you know, speak flu- many languages. And, um, and yet it was very difficult for me to make a career in Germany. I wish I could have had the chance, but Never mind, I ended up with some of the best newspapers in the world, the Washington Post and the New York Times before that. So, yeah, I'm grateful.
0: You were still in college when 9 11 happened, and there emerged a German connection to the yeah. hijackers. So, you went to Hamburg to
1: talk to people there. What did you find out? Well, it was uh, very shocking to me as well, because I figured out that I lived in Hamburg. I went to journalism school there around the same time that three of the 9/11 pilots used to live there. So I didn't understand what happened. Why would those men uh, commit mass murder in the name of my religion? I went into the neighborhoods where they lived. Those were neighborhoods I never been to when I lived in Hamburg and found out that there was a totally different interpretation of Islam. You know, people were talking about An Islam that I had never uh, known before. You know, I went to Quran school in Morocco. I have Muslim parents, but um, we never were taught like this. And to me, this was a a journey into a world I hadn't known. So I went to one of my first interviews, for example, in a suit, right, because I thought I wanted to be Professional. Uh, to, yeah, professional, show, show them that I, you know, have respect and so on, <laughs> and then the people looked at me and said, where's your hijab? How come you, you know, you're wearing a, a shirt that is not long enough, that is not covering uh, everything, and um, so I, it was a learning process for me as well. So the people that you talked to never condemned the 9-11 attacks? They did not, yeah
0: someone that you spoke to said that the hijackers quote paid America back for what they and the Jews have done to us all these years. Yeah. Where does that come from?
1: Well this comes from uh, from uh, their own interpretation of uh, of how the world looks like. They were absolutely um, uh, they believed that there was some conspiracy going on from the United States and uh, as they called it the Jews um, in order to uh, not really what they said liberate Palestine, they believed that uh, the Jews were running, the media, you know, it's this whole propaganda that I had uh, known from uh, learning or reading about the Nazis. And I challenged uh, uh, some of those people and I would tell them, but you are of Moroccan descent or of Algerian descent or of Tunisian descent, what does this have to do with your country? And they would say, well, we don't think as Moroccans, Algerians or Tunisians, we think as Muslims. Um, and I, you know, to me this was a totally new interpretation of, of Islam and I wanted to know why is this, why is it possible that in Germany or in Europe we have people who are full of so much hatred. Um, and I began to understand that a big problem were uh, some of the so-called mosques, right? You had one of the mosques, uh, the, some of the 9-11 hijackers uh, went to um, was in a red-light district right next to the like you had apparently the mosque next to the prostitutes who were standing there in line so you had people passing by uh, this red light district uh, facilities always saying this is how the west is right they were teaching their kids i would talk to kids who would say yeah look the west is you know uh uh, this is it's just about how they treat women how they look at women and uh, it's full of this uh, of all the things that are haram that are actually sins and, and, and so nobody really cared about who were the people preaching in the mosques. And when I began to look into the the books, the um, uh, the kind of teachings, the material, uh, the imams, or the so-called imams, and I would ask them, where did you actually study Islam? And you would figure out, that's not somebody who studied uh, at- But didn't German intelligence know that this
0: was going on? Did they? Didn't they care to look and see what of
1: these imams teaching in their mosques? Well, look, I mean, in all fairness, we had um, somebody called, uh, you know, we had imams also in the United States who were uh, preaching uh, things at mosques that uh, uh, people didn't really follow until much later. We had a recent case, uh, apparently one of the uh, London attackers was inspired by an imam who who was putting his uh, speeches out there on the internet. This is right in And uh, No, Awlaki was killed in a drone strike. No, mm. this is the um, Imam <sighs> Jibril, I think is his name, who is in Michigan. But Awlaki mm. was a U.S. citizen, for y- yes. example. No, you know, the, 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 the interesting thing about this particular mosque, and I, until this today, I don't really understand how it was possible that all this happened. Opposite from the mosque facility, you have a large police station. So I went there, and I'm like, why did nobody really understand what was happening here? Um, and even the people, the friends of the 9-11 hijackers, they told me, look, Mohammed Atta and all those people, they walked around in Islamic clothes. They weren't hiding. So whatever happened, I it's, mean, it's, it's the
0: concept that the West has of, you know, that's religion, and we don't really care about religion. We only care about politics, but sometimes... In this case, the two come together.
1: They came together, certainly in the mosque, yeah, in this mosque.
0: So, and how did going to Iraq to report on the American-led invasion, how did that
1: change you? It definitely shaped me in a way that I look um, from different perspectives at what we see sometimes. And I will get to this in a, in a second. I think I had a different view on what happened during the so-called Arab Spring because of what I witnessed during the, uh, the time, my time in Iraq. Um, he so here I was in the country where um, we were told that um, uh, Saddam Hussein was, you know, toppled also because the weapons of mass destructions. Um, but aside from the weapons of mass destructions, we all knew that he was an, an awful person, and uh, and so on. What I did not really understand back then um, was why the whole concept of bath, uh, the debathification has happened. And, now, of course, I do understand why it happened, but back then, this decision, I would see that some decisions were taken by the U.S. administration, and I was wondering who, for God's sake, is advising you guys? I mean, there was a dis- there was a difference between what I saw happening on the ground and what was announced or communicated to the population, and even to, to their own soldiers. I met American soldiers who told me look we came here because people said uh, to us back in Washington those Iraqis they will welcome you with tea and flowers and you will be seen as liberators and out of a sudden they we found ourselves. They told the American public that too. Well and out of a sudden those uh, young soldiers, 18, 19 year old kids um, um, really found themselves in situations where people said we hate you why did you come because you know we made the mistake not we but decision makers to listen just to a particular circle of people very often it's people who, in in this case it was Ahmed Chalabi, people who studied in the US, who knew exactly how to play the game, um, uh, who knew who to call in Washington, who were there to have dinners and teas, and would give them this idea of, uh, you know, you do this step and then this is is, is turning into, you know, uh, that. But they were not really checking about why. what are the motives of those guys to, to, to do all this. So it was the idea of Chalabi to have the diversification, and at the same time we saw a lot of Shia militias becoming stronger within the structure and taking over the security in, uh, system in uh, Iraq. We also saw some people uh, getting into high level positions who were absolutely influenced by the Iranian regime. Yep. Now. This all unfortunately led to a very toxic mixture given that they also dissolved the army and the police and we had a whole bunch of people who knew how to deal with weapons with arms uh, who had were unemployed. security background unemployed unhappy angry and who saw that militias took over the security of their country to be surprised that the uh, that al qaeda and abu musab al Zakawi's group then gained a lot of power. I mean, I would have been I'm surprised that people were surprised. Yeah. Because to a certain extent me this has shaped me so that when I covered the so-called Arab Spring, I asked some of those activists questions some of my colleagues would not ask them. For example, if somebody would come to me and say we want democracy, happened to me in Egypt, Tunisia, Bahrain, and specifically in Bahrain I was very interested there because, you know, I come from a Sunni Shia background and um, I was really thinking, well, is this now, what is this about? And when I spoke to some activists there, and I would ask them, what do you want? And they would say, we want democracy. And i say, okay, explain to me, what does democracy mean? Right. Does it mean that your wives, who at the moment are not allowed to get a divorce, because you Ayatollah said they should not be allowed to get a divorce, will they be able to get a divorce? And then mm-hmm. they would say, no, 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 no. I mean, this is, our Ayatollah has to decide how the structure will look like. and It's
0: a very different idea of democracy than what we have. Absolutely.
1: absolutely, and, <coughs> and I think we have to be more careful when we, when we do this kind of reporting to ask these questions.
0: In, in your conversations with jihadists, uh, they told you, this is before the rise of ISIS, they told you that the only solution was a caliphate, yeah. an Islamic state. How is it that that idea has been around for quite some time?
1: This yeah. is not new with ISIS. No, it's not new with ISIS. It's been, um, in some of my opening chapters, I mentioned, for example, I mentioned two events in 1979 that I believe played a very big role in uh, the rise of radicalization among Sunnis and Shia, uh, again. Um, One was uh, the return of Ayatollah Khomeini to to, uh, Iran, Iran. Mm -hmm. and the second one was the siege of Mecca. And the siege of Mecca is a very interesting incident. A lot of people don't have this on their radar, but you have this group of people, very radical people, who had the idea that one of them was the Mahdi and that they would declare also some kind of Islamic state. They went into Mecca, the holiest sites of Islam, and um, the Saudi royal family allowed their own clerics to basically blackmail them to a certain point because they, they wanted to send special forces troops into Mecca to take those people out. Um, for this, they needed the approval from um, the, cl- the clerics, the ulema, and they, the ulema b- basically dictated, okay, but we want you to take this rights away and change this and that, and we want more power. And this is the dilemma, I mean, one of the reasons why we are dealing with such a big dilemma today. Um, so the idea is old. And the, the, the interesting thing is they all talk about the kind of caliphate or Islamic state, um, the way the prophet, during the times of the prophet. And I sit there and I really have to pause sometimes because both my parents happen to be descendants of the prophet. And I then ask them, how do you know what the prophet would want you to do now? And how do you know this is really what the prophet wanted to be and wants the caliphate to look like? Some people don't like these kind of questions, and yeah, I can imagine. I understand it's. So, in your reporting, when were you most afraid? There were a couple of moments where I was afraid. There were where you thought you were going to die. Yes, yes, there were. One was in Egypt when I had um, when I had the guns of uh, people from the intelligence service on my head, and I really thought that's it. Um, The second one, well, before that, in Iraq, uh, one in Iraq, they. they blew up a hotel close next to the, the one I was in. Um, I didn't know what would happen to to us then. Why is Egyptian intelligence pointing a gun at your head? And my colleague Nikulish and I we happened to be there during um, a couple of days before uh, the so-called Arab Spring broke out there, uh, because we were uh, working on a book about a Nazi doctor. We had uh, ac- uncovered that one most wanted Nazi doctor had had lived in Egypt and. For many years, and uh, they they couldn't or they didn't know uh, because he changed his identity as well. But um, um, you somehow got arrested yeah. as on the way from on our way from Alexandria to Cairo. We were arrested, and then they thought that we might have been spies or whatsoever. And we spent a very unpleasant night at the facility of the. Have Internal there ever Service. been threats against your life? Absolutely, uh, there have been. There By have been threats. By all sides, I have, Mimi, I have uh, witnessed situations where um, I had German uh, security coming um, to the house saying there, w- there's a threat against your life. People want to kidnap and uh, kidnap you, and uh, and a day before I was supposed to have the meeting with the German intelligence service, um, uh, Bahraini activists attacked me because they didn't like the the line of questions I asked and. And this is so. You y- have enemies everywhere. Well, I mean, I guess, <laughs> but you have, I have Also, friends too. But yeah. Um, but this is the price you pay sometimes when you don't take sides as a reporter, Mimi. And that's um, and when you ask and challenge all the sides, um, because this is my job. It's not my job to, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, affiliated with an organization that does activism. Our aim is to give the reader the best possible insights about what is happening in the countries or within those groups. And my job is to ask, no matter who, critical questions.
0: I want to ask you about um, the ISIS terrorist nicknamed Jihadi John. Yeah, He was the masked executioner of American journalists um, with the British accent. Everybody wanted to know his identity. You were the one that found out and published his real name. How yes. did you do that?
1: Well, th- those were uh, different. Um, a mixture of different circumstances. Um, I I worked with a colleague from The Post uh, um, uh, uh, together on this and um, Adam Goldman. Uh, So it was, what I did was, I took some of my old interviews, like the one I had with Abu Yousaf, the ISIS uh, leader um, uh, from 2014 and went through the notebook and I realized there were a couple of things he told me about highly educated people in their group who also came from the UK and were of different backgrounds. So I started to make a list. And um, I knew from, or we knew from some of the former hostages that Jihadi John was very interested in Somalia as well in video, so I made, you know, I made really literally a list of different words like Somalia, uk uh, and all highly educated and i had one very high up source uh, within isis not the commander i interviewed somebody else who i've known for many years who was first with al-qaeda and then joined isis and through different ways i um i got a phone um it's you know they decide which phone, they arranged that, a phone and uh, a a SIM card that was only for this one phone call. Um, And I basically spoke to him and just told him, look, you know, I'm trying to do a story about this guy. And I put together some of the code words that I had. And what, what happened then was that he was under the impression that, that the you British, already knew. That I already knew, and that somebody was leaking information to us to to frame a certain picture about who this Jihadi John was. And he then leaked the last name to me, his, his you know, Mohammed Emwazi's family name, and w- without knowing that I actually didn't know anything about him.
0: Your name went on that story, yes. obviously, of unmasking Mohammed Emwazi, uh, And you wrote this in the book, quote, I wanted to send a message to Jihadi John and others like him. We will tell the world who you are and stop you from spreading fear. And a Muslim journalist, a woman, has the power to do this.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this man has killed colleagues of mine. He killed somebody else's child. And um, and this is, uh, you know, um, he was hiding behind this mask and uh, it was clear that the moment he would be uncovered, um, you would take away this elusive figure who became uh, this figure that spread a lot of fear and hatred. And there was also a message to the West, by the way, that it was a Muslim woman who did that. And, And to especially those who, um, always try to, uh, to paint the picture as a black and white picture that this is a fight between Islam and the, the rest of the world. It's not. It's not. And people have to stop looking for two easy answers here because those easy answers are the description of uh, how this conflict apparently is uh, they are only hoping helping those who are spreading hatred so you you have been reporting
0: about this since 9-11 for a long time it just seems like things are getting worse uh, Muslims are getting angrier the West is getting attacked more people are
1: dying is there any hope as long as there are people like you like me like others there's always hope about uh, the the, the as long as there are people who are willing to listen and who are willing to not follow the easy answers, and uh, those who are trying to divide us, there is hope. But we have to be aware that it will be it will be very difficult indeed, and this is not going to stop with uh, you know uh, maybe ISIS losing ground in uh, in Syria or in 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 uh, in Iraq. Um, No, it's not going to be the end of ISIS, and we have yet still to see what is going to happen with Al-Qaeda, but we also have to very honestly look at what is happening within our own societies, and why would somebody who grew up in the US, or who was born in the US, or in uh, Europe, um, why would he or she be willing to attack the society they grew up in? And by the way, um, as long as somebody believes that he or she can be a full member of a society, I think they will do whatever they can to protect this. And many people have done this. And And stop stop the victimization complex. Stop the victimization complex. Everybody's
0: against us, everybody's a racist, everybody.
1: Yeah, but we also have to be, you know, but also decision makers, leaders, politicians, have to be aware that words matter. And depending on how you describe the situation, if you, if people generalize about uh, a group, then uh, that's only playing into the hands of recruiters. And you know, Mimi, if I may add this, I it was very important, not only my role as a Muslim woman in this, uh, but there is a woman, I call her Sonia, and we called her Sonia in our story. She was the person who basically helped preventing another attack in France from happening. She is a Muslim French woman, and told the French authorities uh, that uh, uh, Hamid Abaoud was hiding in Paris without this woman, there would have been another attack. Yes. This woman lives in hiding today. So there are those people and we have to tell their stories because it's not black and white.
0: So I thank you very much for being on the program and I hope you stay safe. Thanks for having me, Mimi. This has been the Mimi Gerges Show. You can see all of our programs on WHUT.org and YouTube. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and leave me your comments there. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks for watching, and I hope you'll join me again next time.